We're excited that you guys are here. We're going to be Acts chapter 4 this morning. Acts chapter 4. If you'll follow along with me, verses 1 to verse 12. Luke writes, As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and they put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem, and Annas the high priest was there, and Cephas and John and Alexander, and all were who of high priestly descent. And when they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man has been made well, then let it be known to all of you. And to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the son which was rejected by you, the builders, by which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Will you pray with me? Father God, we give you great thanks for the, the truth and the revelation of your word. Father, we thank you for the great gift that you have bestowed on us through your son, Jesus Christ, that we can have eternal life through him. And Father, I pray this morning, even as we open your word, Father, I pray that you teach us about that salvation. I pray that you teach us about your character, about your nature, about your purposes and how you move in the world. Father, I pray that you allow us to grow in wisdom, even as we interact with our world, as we interact with our culture and claims of truth, Lord. I pray that you'd help us to know how to be spokespersons for you in a day and time in which people do not want to hear about absolute truth. Father, I pray that you'd allow us to be winsome. I pray that you would grow us and stretch us. I pray that your spirit would do something in our midst this morning that would be uh, beyond our anticipation and beyond our expectation, Lord. Father, we ask you these things this morning through your son and by your spirit. Amen. Well, if you guys have been following the headlines at all internationally, uh, it has been hard to miss much of the turmoil that has broken out in the Middle East. I don't know if you guys have been watching or noticed, but uh, in Sudan, in Tunisia, uh, in, in uh, Cairo, in all, all the places throughout the Mediterranean world, a ton of stuff has broken out. U.S. embassies have been breached. U.S. embassies have been uh, attacked. Uh, cars have been exploded. Fires have broken out. Flags have been torn down. U.S. flags have been burned inside and outside of embassies. Uh, different flags have been ere- erected in those embassies. Uh, even Sudan, according uh, to news reports yesterday uh, told the U.S. we don't want your military even to come to bolster your embassy. We don't want you here. And so throughout much of the Mediterranean world, throughout much of North Africa, it's a really interesting time. Uh, Ultimately, I think we're beginning to see political and religious ideologies beginning to really clash in a way more pronounced than maybe we've seen it before. In fact, I think it's a really interesting time to see what's going to happen and how does our country respond. And I think by and large, it's beginning to tell us something about our world. I I think you and I live in a culture, we live in a day and time which people preach and beg for tolerance, tolerance, tolerance. Uh, Mutual respect in terms of other world religions, in terms of other people's beliefs, tolerance really is the name of the game that is the highest arching value that is out there. I think by and large, people at times I think perceive of world religions as if they're little children in a playground who need to learn to play nice and just get along with each other. And yet I think it's hard to dismiss the fact that the events of the last few hours and the last week really show uh, that the world religions are not easily going to be pacified or brought to reconciliation by just simply messages of tolerance, right? There's something profoundly significant that is at war and that is at stake and that is being clashed upon. 
In fact, I think it's no coincidence that our passage this morning as we land in Acts chapter 4 is going to find us in a very similar place as we're going to find a certain religious teaching that's going to be put forward. We're going to find it's going to lead to civic unrest. It's going to lead to the disagreement of religious experts. And what we're going to see is how the world responds to that teaching. I could see some great parallels in how the first century uh, political religious leaders of Jerusalem responded to that particular teaching. And we're going to see great parallels with that, with how our world responds today to religious exclusivity, to the idea that there is an absolute truth out there and that competing claims for truth are contradictory. We're going to see how our world responded then and even, I think, how our world responds today. And then lastly, I think we're going to see from Peter and John as we walk through this passage that they're going to respond in a marvelous way to provide us an incredible model, really, of how you and I are to take the gospel of Jesus Christ into a world that's pluralistic, that doesn't want absolute truth and does not want religious exclusivity, and a world that says tolerance, tolerance, tolerance. And so we're going to really wrestle with those themes of tolerance and intolerance as we look at absolute truth this morning in a really interesting passage. I think as Acts chapter 4 opens up, what you're going to see from the very top is that a certain religious teaching is going to be taught and going to be put forward, and it's going to lead to all kinds of clashes. Notice, if you will, uh, we're, going to, we're going to begin actually at the very end of the passage. Notice with me, if you will, back to verse 12. Uh, and Peter says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Verse 12 is an incredibly powerful statement. There are a few statements like this that throughout our New Testament. We realize that there is an ideology, there is an understanding throughout the New Testament that religious truth, religious belief is exclusive. Peter will say that there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that has been given for men to find salvation other than the name that is Jesus Christ. And that does not play well in our culture today. Our, our culture does not like those kinds of statements. In fact, it's not just in Acts chapter 4. We find it also in John chapter 14 verse 6 when Jesus says this, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It is absolutely impossible to dismiss or disregard those kinds of statements throughout our New Testament. The New Testament is absolutely clear in that there is an absolute version of truth and that the scriptures are claiming that that version of truth that is true and that is right is one in which there is an exclusive claim on truth. That Jesus would say that there is no other way to approach, there is no other access to God himself than through me. There are no other routes. There are no other religions. It is me and me alone. And, and I think for many of us, we realize that the scriptures are calling for that. We realize that other religions are calling for that. But the question I think that many of us have is why does that have to be the case, Right? Why is there only one road to God? I thought all roads lead to God. I thought all roads in some sense were equal and should be tolerant of one another. And so if there's only one road to God, then why does that have to be the case? I think for many of us, we have to realize that what salvation is, is a gift received and not a merit that is earned. That ultimately what salvation is, is a gift received. Paul will say it like this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works. Paul saying in Ephesians that salvation at its very essence is something that is received by grace. It is a gift that is handed to you that cannot be merited. I had an opportunity this, uh, just yesterday to uh, be at a wedding, uh, awesome, beautiful wedding. And, and yet as we came out of the ceremony, I was caught off guard by the fact that this was kind of my kind of wedding because it had an elaborate spread of just desserts, all right? Forget lunch, forget dinner. It was just desserts, all right? It was cakes and cookies of all kinds laid out for you just to feast upon. I just thought, this is, this is a beautiful wedding. Beautiful, all right? Um, and, and so I came out, and of course, my daughter as well, we just launched into it, just had a great time. But I was thinking, though, of how different that is than most weddings, right? Most weddings you come out, typically there's a groom's cake, typically there's a bride's cake, but typically there's just often one kind of cake, right? 
And I, wanna, I want you to imagine a scenario with me, if you will, for just a minute. If you were to come out of a ceremony, head into a reception where there's just one bride's cake. And imagine if it was some kind of version or some kind of flavor that you did not like. Imagine yourself put out thinking, I've brought a great gift for this couple and I don't like their cake. Um, now imagine kind of approaching the bride and she's in a long train of guests who are all there to celebrate her, to see her and, and explain, hey, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I know I have a chance to talk with a lot of people who are excited to be here with you. But is there another cake? Is there, uh, is there another version? Is there another flavor? Because I'm not really into this. In fact, I brought a great, great present for you guys as if that somehow merited your input on the cake selection choices, right? That is not how it works, right? You would be absolutely appalled if you were the bride, right? And some guests came and did that to you. I think all of us have an assumption that when we come to a wedding, that the cake that is there should be delightfully enjoyed, right? Amen. Uh, but secondly, uh, that it's a gift to you, right? It's a gift that comes absolutely free of charge. Whether you brought a present or didn't bring a present, you can still partake of the cake, right? They're not looking for your receipt stubs as you come get some cake, right? That's not how it works, right? But, but if you were to be put out because there was only one offer of cake, you've missed really how this whole thing works, right? Your gift doesn't merit the cake, <laughs> The cake is simply a gift as a provision to you. And so for you to argue as to why aren't there other options really denotes something not just about your heart, but about your assumption of the transaction that's occurring there at that ceremony, right? I think in many regards, obviously salvation is not cake, right? Hopefully it's even better than that, right? But I think for some of us and for many of us and for our world, I think we think we come to the table and we offer to God something that should allow us to have some input on the options that are offered to us and how we get salvation. I think what's fascinating is we look at actually verse 12. There's going to be one little comment in here that I think is absolutely significant. It's just going to turn the tables on how we understand this thing called salvation. Notice verse 12. Again, Luke says, uh, or Peter says, there is salvation in no one else for there's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. It's not just that salvation is a gift received, but even more, I think it's from only one source. Notice uh, it says, there's no other name under heaven that has been given. Notice that the name that will bring salvation or even the salvation itself is something that is given, not something that is earned, right? It is a gift received. It is not a merit that is earned. Even furthermore, there's only one source. There's only one who can provide that gift, which is why there's only one way to the Father. It's why there's only one way to approach because only one can provide this particular gift of salvation. Why is it that way? Why is it only the man, Jesus Christ? Peter will say in verse 10 that it was Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. Why is it that the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ are absolutely so central to the message Peter has chapter after chapter after chapter? I think Peter's point is that who Jesus Christ is is one that stands away and apart from all of creation. Uh, Our scriptures will highlight for us that Jesus was both human and he was divine. He was the God-man. And it was only a God-man that could provide this kind of gift because none other could provide it. Jesus had to be man so that he could stand in place substitutionarily for us. And that as God poured out his wrath and his condemnation on sin, he poured it upon Jesus Christ on the cross. And Jesus as man stood in our place and he accepted the righteous wrath of God that was poured out. That should have been ours, but he received it for himself. But why is it that he could be our substitute? Why is it that God's wrath would be satisfied in Jesus? Because as God, he was the only one that could live perfectly righteously and live perfectly holy. He was the only substitute that would be worthy enough to stand in our place and account for us so that we could receive the gift that was offered. None others could offer that kind of gift. It is only through Jesus Christ. Every other founder, every other religion stands dead in a grave. Actually, he doesn't stand. He lies, right? He's still in the grave, right? 
Uh, he's not gotten up. He's not rise to, to life at all. Jesus stands apart and he stands distinct from every other founder of every other religion. The religions do not blend. They do not look alike. They are not uh, fundamentally insignificantly indifferent, right? There are profound differences between them. And I think for many of us, as we think about world religions, what's going to be fascinating is how this story unfolds. Is Peter's going to be speaking of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see the political and the religious leaders of that day respond. And in their response, we're going to see some really striking similarities with us and how our culture and how our world responds. But before you see that response, I want to highlight for you yet again that ultimately what Jesus Christ is offering is something that only he can offer. I want to ask you this morning, what is it you believe about Jesus Christ? We're going to jump in to see how the world responds, but I want to know ultimately, how do you respond? Do you believe that he was crucified and resurrected, that he and he alone can provide you eternal life and the forgiveness of your sins? Because there's nothing you can do to merit that gift. If you do, you've made the most important decision that you will ever make in your life. If you're still wrestling with that, let me continue to encourage you to consider Jesus Christ. Don't get lost in all the peripheral stuff, but focus in on who Jesus was, what he did, and is there anyone else that could do that? Ultimately, I think we're going to find in Jesus that he stands apart. He stands distinct from every other religion and every other founder. He was one and one of a kind, able to provide something that none others can because he was God and he was man. Ultimately, notice what happens to the culture and to the world that responds. Verse 1, we're going to see that ultimately the world's reaction to this kind of exclusive claim isn't just in our current day and culture, but it was also in the first century church. Notice verse 1, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and they put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. It's fascinating as Peter and the apostles go out to present this truth that uh, the political and the religious leaders are going to be fearful of civic unrest, of riots breaking out, and even of disagreements with, with religious leaders. And so they're going to move to arrest these guys and in a sense to put them away. In fact, I think what they'll do is what we see often in our culture. Many would say this, many of you may feel this way as well, that religious exclusivity is not just narrow, but it's dangerous. Religion has led to untold strife, division, and conflict. It may be the greatest enemy of peace in the world. If Christians continue to insist that they have the truth, and if other religions do this as well, the world will never know peace. Some of you guys may feel that way. And I think ultimately as you look at our headlines, as you look at even church history, It's not hard to think that, right? Religion has led to all kinds of violence. Religion, Christian religion, Islamic religion, all religions have all had some moment, some time in which uh, great atrocities were levied and great injustices were done on the name and on the sake of religion. Question is, is it religion's fault? Is religion fundamentally being exclusivistic causing that kind of violence? What's fascinating if you look at world history is this, that some of those that were cultures and governments that thought that religion was the problem moved to enact in order to ban it. If you can ban religion, you can ban this divisive thing, then you can have peace and you can have civic rest in your culture, in your country. And yet, as we look at human history, what we notice is that those that were often crying for tolerance the greatest and that banned religion were often those that were the most likely and had the greatest track records of injustice, atrocity, and not tolerance, but intolerance. Speaking particularly of China and uh, Nazi Germany, Alistair McGrath says this, 20th century gave rise to one of the greatest and the most distressing paradoxes of human history. That the greatest intolerance and violence of that century was practiced by those that believed religion caused intolerance and violence. Nazi Germany, China itself. Let's ban religion because it is a problem. It will lead to civic unrest. 
And in banning it and in banning different kinds of religions and controlling religious practice, what you ended up having was some of the greatest atrocities of human history, cultural revolution and the Holocaust. Those that were preaching tolerance, thinking that religion was the problem, were those that became the most responsible for the greatest human atrocities and human intolerances and injustices that we saw in the 20th century. Religion is often seen as the problem, but to ban it is not the solution. Because if there are exclusivistic claims that create civic unrest or that create disagreement, the result is, and the solution is not to ban it. To do that leads to a far greater trial and a far greater error, and our history shows it. But let's not pull back from the fact that obviously Christian crusades of the 15th century, 17th century, and the 30 years war in Europe decimated much of Europe. Religion has caused violence. Those that thought religion was the problem, they caused violence. And so the great issue is not religion or no religion. The great issue really is the human heart, right? You can have religion and have incredible violence. You can have no religion, have it controlled and oppressed, and you have incredible violence. And so why is that? Because ultimately the problem is not religion, it is the human heart. The human heart, they can only be justified, forgiven, and cleansed by one who could die in humanity's place righteously. Sin is the punishment for sin, being God and being man. Christianity has the only solution to that problem. and does not mean that the church has always acted correctly or has always handled itself in the right way in human history, and church history shows that. But ultimately, to ban religion is not the solution to the problem. And so what many cultures do and what many governments do is they move from a practical to a philosophical vantage point. What I want you guys to see is where does the passage go next? So notice what happens, verse, uh, verse 4. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. One of the most interesting things in world history or even church history is that when the church comes under persecution and when governmental leaders try to push it underground is often when it births and it emerges far more powerfully and far more vibrantly than any other time. And we see that in verse four, the church no longer becomes this off strain of Judaism, but they become a powerful, uh, powerful component in Judaistic society. So much so that notice what happens. All the leaders gather together. They can't ban and, in a sense, bury this little offshoot of Judaism. Now it's starting to take over. It's starting to be noticed. And so they're going to gather because they feel threatened. Notice verse 5. On the next day, notice how quickly it happens. Their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas the high priest was there. And Cephas and John and Alexander. And all were who have high priestly descent. Ultimately, you have everyone who has clout and power in first century Jerusalem gathered together immediately. Christianity could not be banned. It could not be buried. It was gaining steam. It was gaining momentum. And so they were going to have to deal with it. And why did they want to deal with it? Ultimately, we're going to see here in a minute that they felt threatened. And so they're going to gather and then they're going to invite the early church leaders to a discussion, which is not a discussion at all. All right. Uh, when anyone who has leverage over you invites you to discussion, you are often uh, on guard. Right. So if a boss has ever said to you, hey, we need to talk you often know what's probably coming around the corner, right? A poor job performance or, or you're out, you're gone. Or your girlfriend says, hey, we need to talk. Those are usually not good words, right? You, you know what's coming around the corner. Uh, and if your boss or your girlfriend has ever taken measures as well to, to surround that conversation in a way that would prevent it from uh, catching flame and having a lot of fallout, you also know that something isn't right, right? So if the girlfriend says to you, hey, uh, it's been a busy day. Why don't we just meet at Mugwalls and we can talk? Uh, and actually, I'm, I'm running from somewhere, so let's just take our own cars there. Because she's trying to reduce the fallout. You, you know this is not going to be a good situation, right? And so what you're going to see is the, early, or the Jerusalem leaders of the day are going to do that. They're going to they're invite the early church to a conversation, but they're going to do it in the kind of way to reduce fallout. And it's not a conversation at all. It's a one-way inquisition. Notice verse 7. When they placed them in the center, they began to inquire, right? They're not asking questions here, right? 
They place them in the center. This is not some seminar where it's just a great Q&A time, right? They're, they're going to talk directly at them, and their questions are, more, are nothing more than accusations. But notice the nature of their accusation, verse 7. By what power or in what name have you done this? One of the interesting things, even as Peter's going to respond to them, if you were here with us last week, really, they're referring to a miracle that occurred in Acts chapter 3 when Peter and John healed a lame beggar who had been for 40 years outside the temple as men and women just passed them by. And eventually, as they were praying for the kingdom to be established and to come, Peter and John asked God, and God moves, and he brings this lame beggar, heals him, he immediately walks, he immediately leaps, he comes in praising God. And in the midst of that moment, uh, all of a sudden, they're beginning to discuss, hey, this, this thing called Christianity is starting to take off, we need to have a conversation. And what you notice, even from their accusation and their questions, is they're not at all concerned with the beggar and the healing. They're not rejoicing in any way, shape, or form. They're feeling threatened, and so they're questioning really, again, by what power, by what right, by what authority have you done this? The accusation and the implication is it wasn't by our authority. And ultimately, as all those who had power uh, in first uh, century Jerusalem have gathered here, they're feeling threatened, and so what they want to do whenever those who have power are threatened, ultimately what they want to do is they can't ban it, so they want to blend it. What you're going to notice, whenever those in religious or political positions who have authority and have power feel threatened by a movement of religion, one of the things you're going to see over and over again is that the attempt or the move strategically is to blend it. It's a move from the practical about violence to the philosophical, basically a a way to say to religions, hey, you guys just act nice with one another, you guys just blend into the landscape and don't try to be so different. In fact, that's exactly what they're going to say here to Peter. And notice Peter's response, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. And in case you think you can blend us into the landscape so that we look like everybody else, verse 11. Jesus is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders of it, which became the chief cornerstone. Judaism and Christianity break here, and Peter's point to them is, look, you cannot blend this as, as within Judaism or within any other religious movement in, in the cultural landscape. Jesus stands apart, he stands distinct, he will not be blended, and he will not be banned. And ultimately, I think our culture does the same thing, right? The conversations and the dialogues are different, but I think our culture does the exact same thing in this. How does our culture, how do our political, how do our religious leaders try to blend religion today? They don't like exclusive religious claims. They don't like the idea of absolute truth. And so how is it that they blend religions into different landscapes today? I'm going to give you guys a few quick uh, phrases that I think a lot of y'all have heard that I think are an attempt to blend religion. Many have said all major religions are equally valid and basically teach the same thing. I don't know how you really read uh, the news headlines today and think that, right? Uh, a film that was released on YouTube has sparked millions of Muslims in, uh, to be irate, to be disrespected, and they think it's against and provoked by America, and so they're coming at America. The differences between religions are significant, and you cannot just paint them with one stroke. When they have different statements of truth that are absolutely contradictory and it cannot be both true, you cannot lump them all together and just say, get along, play nice, and just be similar with one another. You can't do that. And I think very few actually today would argue that or really are going that direction thinking that there's nothing that's insignificantly different than one another. I think ultimately Christianity does stand apart from other, other world religion and that Christianity thinks that salvation itself is not something that is merited, but it's something that is given. I think most every other world religion says if you can do this, this, and this, you can merit the approval of God. And Christianity says you can't. 
In fact, the reason why Jesus Christ had to be crucified and had to be incarnated to come on our behalf is because our offense and our sin was that great that it merited and that it was necessary that Jesus Christ, a holy, perfect, unblemished lamb, would be sacrificed for us. For religions that think that you can merit heaven or merit the approval of God, they also think that our transgression against God is not that great. If you can patch it up yourself, then you didn't really get yourself in that much trouble. But for Christianity to say, no, 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 what had to happen for you to be reconciled with God himself was to have the son of God, Jesus Christ himself, crucified and slain so that you could have life. You got yourself in trouble. And it's that great and it's that extent that Jesus himself had to be incarnated, to stand as our substitute, and to die on our behalf. So to say that religions are all alike really is hogwash. And I think a few people today really would go that far. But I think a lot of people do say this. Each religion sees part of the truth, but none can see the whole. I don't know if you guys have ever heard that. Uh, part of the illustration would be three blind men who come up on an elephant, uh, and each blind man touches a part of the elephant, and in a sense, this is, becomes his religion. So he says, here's what's true. One guy comes up and he touches the elephant's trunk, blind, uh, and he says, I think the elephant is like a slender, uh, flexible thing. Another guy comes up on the elephant's leg and goes, no, no, I think the elephant is like a big, large tree stump. Another guy comes up on the elephant and he touches the elephant's back and goes, no, no, I think the elephant is just like a big, giant wall. All are true in a sense, None are necessarily contradicting one another, but that's not what religion is, right? (laughs) Hopefully not, right? And ultimately, I think what's fascinating philosophically is this, that for the pluralist who will declare that, ultimately, why does he think he's exempt from his own criticism levied at religion, right? If he thinks that every religion cannot stand and to see the whole, then why does he think that he can stand to see the whole? Why is he exempt from the same criticism that he's levying against religion when it could be true with him as well? He's the only one who stands out from all the other world religions and can see that they all can't see the whole, right? And yet I think he falls prey to the same criticism that he's loving at religion, which makes his statement not nearly as reliable as he thinks it is. Similarly, some of y'all may have heard this one. Religious belief is too culturally and historically conditioned to be truth. Uh, Some would argue the only reason why you maybe believe in Jesus Christ is because you were born in a Christian home, you live in the Bible Belt, and you attend Texas A&M University and go to Grace Bible. I don't know. Um, And yet, is that true? Is that why you believe what you believe, just because it was handed to you and you grew up in a certain place? One would say, if you grew up in Morocco, that you would be Muslim. Uh, One of my favorite uh, philosophers, a guy named Plantiga, and he says this regarding uh, such a statement. Someone asked this guy one time, if you were born in Morocco, you wouldn't be a Christian, but rather a Muslim. And he responded by this, saying this. Suppose we can see that if I had been born in Muslim parents in Morocco rather than Christian parents in Michigan, my beliefs would have been quite different. But the same goes for the pluralist. If the pluralist had been born in Morocco, he probably wouldn't be a pluralist. This is a follow that his pluralist beliefs are produced in him by an unreliable belief-producing process, right? If the pluralist will say, you're just a Christian because you grew up in this one historical place and in this one particular culture, then doesn't his criticism, isn't he not exempt from his own criticism, right? Would he be a pluralist then if he'd grown up in Morocco, is is the philosopher's point. Again, The idea being his own true statement falls prey to the same criticism that he's making at religion. So it's no more reliable than one religion's true statement. All right. Ultimately, I think religion, therefore, isn't like some of our preferences. Right. Um, I clearly grew up in Dallas, which is why I'm a giant Dallas Cowboys fan. All right. Uh, I grew up in a time which we were actually going to the playoffs and winning playoff games. All right. Um, Some of y'all know this, but uh, I was watching a game a week and a half ago and and Marcy, my wife, was laughing because they talked about the Cowboys had been in a drought. All right. And that they'd won one playoff game in like 15 years. And my wife, who's supportive of my football watching, but then went off and that's not really a drought at all. Right. That's like a a depression. All right. So um, so even if you grew up in Dallas since they've not been winning playoff games, 
games in a while, you may not be a Dallas Cowboys fan, right? And yet, religion, thanks. And yet, hopefully religion is not like our sport allegiances, right? Hopefully we don't attach ourselves to religions just because we grew up in certain places or because we like a certain team or we like their uniforms, right? Religion is not like your personal preference for Chipotle versus Freebirds, right? I don't know which one you fall on that, all right? But hopefully as we talk about different religions, it's not the same kind of exchange as we talk about preferences for soda, for ice creams, for restaurants, or for sport allegiances. Surely there is something fundamentally different about them. Ultimately, my charge and my hope for you guys is you wrestle with what you believe. Again, it's not just because you hear it in a church setting or because your parents handed it to you, but because you wrestle with the word of God and what Jesus Christ has revealed through his own word. Ultimately, I think a religion and religious beliefs, exclusive as they may be, are not conditioned by history or by culture. Those things definitely have an impact as we interpret and as we try to understand truth. But ultimately, truth, if it is truth, absolutely and eternally stands the test of generations and stands the test of time. I do not think that religious beliefs, whether they are exclusive or not, are just historically and culturally conditioned. All right? And then I think for many, if they can't blend it, then one of the things that they'll try to do is bury it. Some will say that religious belief is a matter of personal and private opinion and should not therefore enter the public arena. The three prior ones I gave you, I think all are criticisms that are levied at religion, and yet they cannot escape the very criticism that they are levying at religion. All right? And so, since the philosophical argument often cannot be won, I think some just go to the private argument in order to bury it. Uh, That religious beliefs shouldn't enter into the public arena, whether it's entertainment, whether it's education, whether it's politics, whether it's economics. That the Bible and the scriptures and your faith have nothing to say about those different arenas. That's hogwash, right? (laughs) Your faith has something to say about all of those arenas. The question is, how do you take your faith and exclusive claim on truth, and how do you cause that and bring that into the public arena? Ultimately, when philosophical officers can't cause our faith to be blended into the landscape, they want to just bury it from the landscape. Just keep it to yourself. We don't need to talk about it. Because when we talk about it, it causes disagreement. It causes civic unrest. And what we want most is peace. So let's just talk about tolerance, tolerance, tolerance. And I wonder if tolerance really is best received and is best given is by burying our faith. I don't think so at all. I think what Peter and John will do for you and I is provide us an incredible model for how you and I are step into our world and engage our world with exclusivistic claims on truth and a world that doesn't want that and a world that wants to ban it, blend it, and bury it. What do we do? Ultimately, I think we do two things. Uh, Peter will give us an incredible example. I think first we boldly proclaim Jesus, all right? Uh, Peter and John are phenomenal here. They go right at it. And they go right at, here is who Jesus is, and we go right at the heart of the issue, one of the things I think that's really fascinating about this, owning, this particular example as you look at this story is that I, I think for many of us as we step into our culture, we can often get sidetracked on peripheral topics. Really what brought up this debate and what brought up this discussion in Acts chapter 4 was a miracle done to a beggar. It's what prompts the controversy, but Peter recognizes the controversy is not about the miracle or about the beggar or about the healing. The controversy is about Jesus Christ. And so ultimately, what you guys notice that Peter does is he, he quickly evades that peripheral issue and goes right to the heart of the matter. I want to challenge you, in our culture, in our day and time, there are a ton of hot-button topics that relate to our faith, but are, I think, peripheral ramifications to our faith. Your definition of marriage today, your understanding of sexual orientation, your stance on abortion, your stance on taxes, economics, your stance on creation, on science, all of those things are significant, and I think our faith has something to say about them. But they are all peripheral. And I think for us, as we step into our culture, as we step into our world, if people will not agree with us on the nature and the identity and the work of Jesus Christ or the rest of it, we're not going to find agreement on. 
Ultimately, the rest of it is simply rock and roll. It is simply window dressing for the ultimate thing and the primary issue, and that's Jesus. Let me challenge you as you think about your campus, as you think about your dorm, as you think about the world that you live in, that you step in, let me challenge you to proclaim Jesus boldly. You may speak to and you may get caught up in certain peripheral issues, but don't let them sidetrack you from really where people are mainly wrestling with and the main controversy in people's minds and hearts, and that's the nature, the identity, and the person of Jesus Christ. Don't get sidetracked. And as you stand in your dorm, as you stand on your campus, and as you stand in your sorority or wherever you are, and wherever the Lord's put you, I want to ask you a couple questions this morning, and that's this. Are you finding yourself getting pushed back on? Are you being ridiculed? Are you being rejected? Are you being scoffed at? Are you told in, being told, just, hey, just blend in a little bit. Just bury this. It's not a public issue. Why are you making it so much to the forefront of things? If you are, let me applaud you. <laughs> let me say, way to be bold for Jesus Christ. But let me also challenge you along these lines and ask, as you think about those moments, as you think about those pushback moments, is it about peripheral things? Are you arguing about the peripheral things? Are you arguing and keeping things stuck on the person of Jesus Christ? Notice Peter, time and time again, chapter after chapter, continues to come back to the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. Everything else is window dressing. Everything else is rock and roll. All right? Peter comes back over and over again. And as you guys come into those moments, let me encourage you. I think that ultimately, we'll talk about this in a minute, but ultimately, it's not a personal thing because ultimately the primary thing that people have a problem with is Jesus Christ. And the rest of it is related to him and your faith in him, but that's not really the main issue. I think it's often those peripheral things that really lull us and bring us into debates, bring us into controversy, but it's not the primary issue for people. The primary issue is Jesus. If you think about your world, if you think about your sphere and your community zone, you find yourself going, I'm not really experiencing that much pushback. I'm not really experiencing that much ridicule or scoffing. Then I would ask you, how bold about Jesus are you? I'll, I'll admit to you guys, it's easy for me to be pretty bold up here on a Sunday morning, but when I think about my neighbors and I think about my cul-de-sac, it's a different ballgame, right? Uh, here is a different place than there. The rules are different. The, the ability to engage is different, and it's harder. So I get that. And yet, even in my own life, I realize I'm not experiencing a lot of pushback because, frankly, I'm not being that bold. And, and maybe you'd be right there with me. And maybe what you need to hear this morning is, don't pull back from Jesus Christ. The greatest thing of tolerance that you can do, the greatest way that you can love those who are around you is to be bold about him because he is the only one that has life and life eternal to give. There's no other way to the Father, and so we have to be bold about him. And if you are bold about him, then I would say next, brace yourself. (laughs) If you're willing to be bold for Jesus Christ, brace yourself. Peter and John had to brace themselves because it was coming. Pushback, intolerance, claims of bigotry, claims of narrow-mindedness, whatever it may be, you've heard it, you'll hear it again. And if the degree that you are bold about him is the degree that you'll hear some of this stuff. So let me challenge you, be bold for him, embrace yourself. And as you brace yourself, I want you to hang on to three different things. One, it's not personal. That when you stand in the court of public opinion and pushback and ridicule and scoffing comes at you, remember again, it's not about you. The problem people have is not you, but it's about Jesus Christ and the exclusive route that he's made only to the Father through himself. People's problem is with him, which is why Peter will say, even in verse 26, the kings of the earth took their stand. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Notice uh, where the Old Testament quote runs to the idea there is in the midst of the court of public opinion, as people have gathered to assault and to ridicule, the ridicule is not levied at you. So keep your composure because it's not personal. If you will stand for Jesus Christ, realize that the rebuke, the ridicule, and the scoffing you're getting is his because he's the one they have a problem with. And so don't take it personal. Remain composed. And secondly, I'd say this. 
remember that God is still in control. It's interesting in verses 21 to about 26, as, it, as the story goes on in the latter half of the chapter, we're going to have uh, Peter and John basically saying uh, to those who are ruling over them, to those who arrested them, and we're basically taking them through an inquisition, and they'll say, we don't want you to teach in this name anymore. And Peter and John, realizing that God is a higher control and a higher authority in their lives, will say, whether it's pleasing to you or not, <laughs> ultimately whether I will be punished for this or not, I cannot resist the authority and the, and the fact that he is the Lord of my life. So they continue to preach Jesus Christ. In fact, it's interesting, even as they go on, uh, because they're afraid of the crowds, afraid of the, the kind of the momentum that Christianity is gaining, ultimately they're going to release Peter and John. Uh, they're going to threaten them further, but they're going to release them. And they're going to go back and they're going to begin to praise God for the fact that he is sovereign, that he has control over all religious leaders and all political leaders. We'll see that theme come back later on in the book of Acts. But ultimately, I think as you and I brace ourselves as we proclaim Jesus boldly, realize it's not personal and also realize that God is still in control no matter your circumstances and no matter what you encounter. And the last thing I'd say is this, and this for me is one of the most encouraging things, the greatest way that you can train for that moment, the greatest way that you can train for being in the court of public opinion is devotion. One of my favorite passages in this entire book isn't verse 12, it's verse 13. And it's an odd passage. Notice what uh, Luke tells us in verse 13. So now as they, the crowds observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men. What an insult, right? Uh, Maybe it's just that we're in an academic setting in an academic university setting, but notice, we realize that these guys are just idiots, all right? Uh, But notice, notice why they're given a hearing though. They were amazed and they began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. These guys are fishermen. These guys were not educated in the school of Gamaliel like Paul was. They didn't have uh, education in rhetoric, training in rhetoric. These guys were just hacks trying to get, get it by and discussing what they've seen and what they've heard. And what I love about verse 13, whether you think of it in the context of evangelism or any other context, is why is it that you would get a hearing as you declare Jesus Christ? It's not because ultimately our sense is, if I have all the right answers, if I sound eloquent enough, if I sound educated enough, then I can stand the test of what it will come at me. What I love about Peter and John and their example, according to verse 13, is the reason why they had a hearing was not because of their education. It's because they were devoted and people recognized that they had been with Jesus. Jesus had rubbed off on them. And as people were wrestling with this message of truth and this message of hope, ultimately what people were wrestling with was the desire to know Jesus Christ. And the reason why they were going to listen to Peter and John is because they recognized and they sensed that they had been with Jesus and they were becoming like Jesus already. Ultimately, you guys know at 915, we're doing an elective on apologetics and trying to provide you guys answers for so many of the, the primary objections that our culture and our world has for our faith. And let me just say, if you guys are looking for that kind of thing, it's a great spot to be trained. It's a great spot to be challenged. But that is 201 in this whole thing called evangelism. That is not 101. It's great to learn some good answers to engage our culture in a way that's gentle and wise with our minds. But ultimately notice 101 is verse 13. Notice why Peter and John even had a hearing, not because they had all the answers, but all they knew is what Jesus had done, what he had said, and what they had seen. And the same story you get with a woman at the well in John chapter 4. She goes back and she just says, hey, here's what Jesus did in my life. It's amazing. Let me just say, if you guys think about sharing your faith, as you think about proclaiming Jesus boldly, wherever it is that you step, wherever it is the Lord has put you, know that you will have a hearing not on the basis of the eloquence and the reasoned thought of your answer. You will have a hearing and people will give you a hearing and listen to you because if they can tell if you've been with Jesus and if you know Jesus. And to those that want to know Jesus, that's what they're looking for most. Show me the real deal. Show me what it looks like. Show me what it sounds like. If you know Jesus, then you have the best training ground possible to proclaim him and to speak of him and to provide answers to a world that's asking them.
So my great challenge to you this morning would be simply this. If you want to know answers, great. Our electives would be a great one option. But one of the best things that you can do is simply devote yourself to know him and to walk with him. And that it is in that spot that you'll know him. It's in that spot that you'll begin to speak of him and be able to speak of him. And that your love for him will begin to pour out in an overflow that's not about strategy. It's not about all the right answers. It's about, hey, there's this one that I love that I know, and I want you to know him. And so what we're going to do this morning is respond in worship. I want to give you guys an opportunity uh, with the rest of the morning, really. uh, Not just one closing song, but let you guys have an opportunity just to come before the one that we want to be devoted to. To come before the one that we want to praise and worship and respond to in terms of his excellencies, in terms of his majesty, and in terms of his glory. And so I want you guys just to have a chance this morning to respond, just to sit before the Lord. And so I'm going to pray for us, and then Tyler and the crew are going to lead us into worship a little bit more. Father God, we give you great thanks that you are the only way to the Father. That there are not other ways, there are not ways that we can merit, that we have to feel this pressure, but that you have provided in uh, your son's death payment for sins. That we can know you, that we can be reconciled to you. And I pray this morning that if we've never made that decision, that we'd make that this morning. And Father, for those of us who do know you, Lord, I pray that you would allow us to be freshly devoted to you. That as people interact with us, they would recognize us as those that have been with you. And I pray this morning, even this morning, might you draw us nearer to you. Might you give us a fresher love for you. Uh, Might you give us a greater passion for you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.